Welcome to the Clyde Collision Podcast, where we discuss topics at the nexus of health, technology, policy, equity, and more. My name is Lisa Josephy, and I'm the Managing Director of Clyde Health. In our first season, the Clyde Collision Podcast focuses on all things health, from emerging therapies like psychedelics to AI. Episodes will reflect our passion for all aspects of what's most exciting in health and wellness right now. Tune in as we navigate the future of healthcare by amplifying expert insights, discussing and predicting trends, and exploring innovations that will make an impact on the world of health and society at large. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our very first episode of the Clyde Collision Podcast. For this inaugural episode, we'll be chatting about a highly controversial but fascinating and important topic, the use of psychedelics for the treatment of mental health disorders and other health conditions. Psychedelics is one of the hottest topics in healthcare at the moment, with new developments and constant movement in research, players, access, and advocacy. All things psychedelics have been capturing headlines daily. To help make sense of it all, I'm joined by Karen Luang, a partner and co-founder of the Psychedelic and Emerging Therapies Practice Group at Hush Blackwell, an AMLA Top 100 firm and the first law firm to create a psychedelics practice. Welcome, Karen. Hello. Thank you for having me, Lisa. Absolutely. Thanks so much for joining us today for such an interesting and hot topic. So Karen, your law firm is pretty conservative, which makes me really curious about how you personally became interested in this area and how your firm decided to take the leap and launch a psychedelic-specific practice. Uh, Maybe we can begin by having you share a bit about that and your experience in the space. Sure. You know, for me, this is, um, well, first of all, how often do you get the opportunity to be on the ground floor of a completely new practice area? That's um, uh, just intellectually, that's extremely interesting to me. And, uh, you know, it's not very common that this happens, that you get to be a part of history and part of making the law and, and really be at the very beginning of things. There's that. But personally, for me, this is also very meaningful to me personally. And uh, my parents are, well, my family are refugees of the Vietnam War. So uh, I was born in California, but it was really soon after they came. And, um, you know, growing up, all my relatives would, were, you know, slowly trickling in from various refugee camps. And you know, I remember when I was a kid, you know, we would be living like 10 people at a time in, in my family's really small house. And, you know, various aunts and uncles and cousins would come by. One of the first things I remember about that experience was all of their uh, nightmares. Very, very common that they would wake up and tell each other, oh, my gosh, you know, I dreamt I was still at the refugee camp or I dreamt I was still escaping from the war and was swimming across the river, things like that. And um, they didn't really have a name for PTSD back then, but it was um, it was something that really, really impacted my family. And it means the world to me to be able to do something professionally with all of the amazing research that's going on. Wow, Karen, um, thank you for sharing such a personal story about the trauma your family endured and that you witnessed as a child. Um, It seems like, you know, PTSD, trauma, depression, anxiety, that's really kind of the main focus of psychedelics R&D. I know that they're looking at things beyond that, but that really seems to be the main focus to date. So that makes a lot of sense. And that's a pretty amazing story. So thanks again for, for sharing that. So Karen, I'm wondering if we could just start with the basics, if you could give us a brief overview of what the current state of play is, and maybe start by answering two seemingly simple questions. One, what are psychedelics and what falls into the psychedelic category? And two, are psychedelics currently legal for medicinal use? 
Okay, so first question, um, what are psychedelics? They are a category of drugs that, you know, colloquially we call them psychedelics, but uh, really when people talk about them, they're really, they mean mostly MDMA, psilocybin, LSD, DMT, um, also ketamine. Um, ketamine is its own special category because it's actually a Schedule 3 drug, not Schedule 1. Going back to when I was talking about the scheduling of certain drugs, uh, the Controlled Substances Act splits up all drugs into four different schedules, right? Schedule 1 drugs are the most, the most restricted, and uh, ketamine is a Schedule 3. All of the other drugs that we're talking about, psilocybin, MDMA, LSD, etc., are Schedule 1 controlled substances. The major characteristic of a Schedule One controlled substance, it's in the definition, is that it has no accepted medical use. So as long as these drugs stay in Schedule One, the definition of them is that there is no accepted medical use. It's, aside from ketamine, um, a characteristic of psychedelics that is uh, that's common is that is that the effect generally always hit the 5-HT2A receptor. Popularly, they're known to uh, they can cause changes in consciousness, sometimes hallucinations. Uh, MDMA is really more a and empathogen that actually causes people to really open up in their emotions and be able to uh, deal with past trauma that way. For your second question, are psychedelics currently legal for medicinal use? This is a very good question. It's it's something that I feel uh, clients often get confused with. And so the answer is, other than ketamine, which is a Schedule 3, psychedelics are not currently legal for any use other than research in the United States. And I'm, when I say legal, I'm talking about federally legal, because people might, you know, might have heard that Oregon and Colorado have developed frameworks that legalize psychedelics in those states for certain uses. Uh, but federally, it remains illegal and um, you cannot use a Schedule One substance unless you are doing drug development or research. So would you be able to tell us a little bit more about what's happening in terms of drug development? Because as you said, it sounds like there are things happening at the state level, then there are things happening at the federal level, including the effort to make certain psychedelics available through the FDA regulatory pathway. So could you give us a little bit of detail around all the different things that are happening across all of those different efforts? Sure. Um, let me start with just a really brief uh, overview of the drug development process. So drug development right. is uh, with the FDA. It's a, it's a process that is governed by the FDA very, very strictly. It takes a long time. Um, you start first with research and then you have preclinical research on in vitro, which is a research on cells. Then you have in vivo research, which is on animals. And then you start the clinical trial process. There are three phases of clinical trials. The first one is really to get over the hurdle of safety. Uh, I should back up a little bit and say clinical trials are the actual trials that you do on humans. You have phase one, phase two, and phase three. Each phase has more and more people that, you, that you're doing the clinical trial on. And after phase three, um, if you have uh, established, working with the FDA the whole time, established that the drug is um, safe and effective for its intended use, you can submit a new drug application, which is the process that the FDA goes, goes through to approve that drug for medicinal use. Currently, there are three companies that have drugs that are in um, phase three clinical trials. The most well-known one, I think, would be MAPS, and they are, I think, the closest to getting FDA approval, and that is for MDMA for treatment-resistant PTSD. The other two are uh, psilocybin and, um, and actually ketamine. Uh, company that is uh, developing ketamine for alcohol use disorder. That's super interesting, Karen. So um, I'm just curious, what type of companies are leading the way in the space? I know MAPS is a major player, but who else? 
Are they primarily smaller emerging companies? And where is Big Pharma in all of this? Uh, MAPS is very unique and, and probably in you know owing greatly to their very enigmatic um, and you know, awesome leader, Rick Doblin, who is just a leader in this field and has been fighting for legalization um, and recognition of psychedelics as an effective treatment for mental health disorders for decades now. So MAPS is a nonprofit and, and well, they, they do have MAPS Public Benefit Corporation. They were really more of the grassroots and um, most of their funding was from donations. The other two companies are, are really more traditional. Like Compass Pathways is the company I was talking about with the psilocybin drug in phase three clinical trials, they have patented their own um, formulation of psilocybin and um, and they're tr- pushing that through the FDA. So if you look at all the companies that are in phase you know two and phase one, there are more and more every day. These are really, uh, you know, because it's it, these are clinical trials, This is the, these are drug development uh, companies, pharmaceutical companies, biotech, and they you know, and I, I think a big reason for that is because this process is extremely expensive. It's a long process. It's very, very costly. And you really need the type of capital that can push you through. Oh, interesting. So as we've discussed, there are a bunch of efforts taking place on different levels and pathways, right? So I was wondering if you could share your perspective on how far we are, do you think, from legalizing use of psychedelics for medical use? And are there any parallels you can draw with the cannabis journey? Uh, sure. With the three uh, the three drugs that are currently in phase three clinical trials, those are very close. The first will probably be MDMA, and we and you know the industry in general expects that to happen within a year, like we we think, or maybe slightly longer. That so they're very close to the first legalization of a classic psychedelic for treatment resistant, or sorry, for uh, PTSD. That is approved by the FDA. I think that will be extremely encouraging for the rest of the um, the industry when that does happen. For legalizing the use of psychedelics for personal use, the way cannabis has happened in certain states, um, I think we're far from that. The uh, Department of Health and Human Services has this past year issued a sort of memorandum saying that they they are really they want to create a task force to research the use of these. Uh, substances for for mental health disorders. Those are all really kind of in uh, a medical context. There's an interesting case that is working its way through the Ninth Circuit um, called Ames versus DEA. That case started in Washington, and it's really about whether or not the DEA um, or the enforcement arm of the government has any say in whether or not a a psychedelic um, or a drug, or um, in, in this case, uh, psilocybin, it, whether or not it has a currently accepted medical use. You know, when you look at all of the trials and all the research that's happening, that's not really true. There is an accepted medical use. Uh, so Ames versus DA is a case that is really trying to um, uh, get the DEA um, and, you know, the rest of the rest of government to, to recognize, hey, First of all, why is the DEA deciding this? Um, they are not doctors. Maybe we should listen to the doctors and the scientists about whether there's an accepted medical use for things. Um, so that's really interesting. And it, uh, it's an interesting case to watch. So that's currently uh, working its way through the, the courts? Yeah, it is. Um, the, the hearings on the latest petition were in um, two weeks ago, I believe on Friday. And the Ninth Circuit granted the petitioner's request to have this request to um, allow psilocybin, in this case, to treat end-of-life palliative care patients. The court ruled that the DEA's decision, the denial to allow an exception for psilocybin in this circumstance was basically that the DEA didn't explain themselves well enough. So it remanded the case back to the DEA to um, 
either explain itself, explain its denial, or hold um, hold proceedings on an open record. And so this is very, very encouraging for anybody who is um, involved in this case. We really, really look forward to uh, continuing to represent the uh, cohort of doctors that, that I represent in um, as as amici, friends of the court in this case. Um, you know, as it pushes its way through. Wow. It sounds like there are so many different players and stakeholders involved weighing in on so many different things, whether it's for medical use, personal use, you know, one agency saying it has a right to control versus another. I think I've also seen news about there being on the Hill, for instance, bipartisan political support for use of psychedelics, specifically around veterans having access to psychedelics for uh, PTSD, I believe. Are you able to weigh in on that a little bit? Yes, and I, you know, I think the situation of, of uh, veterans is really, really uh, what's making this a bipartisan effort. Everybody wants to help the vulnerable among us who, uh, you know, and, and a, a big cohort of that that we can see that have PTSD or veterans. There have been uh, an amazing number of really, really compelling uh, veteran spokespeople who have, you know, come up and, and spoken about this. And there are different organizations that are dedicated to helping out, out with the research and getting the funding to get veterans the help that they need. Um, you know, I should mention that traditionally the treatment resistant PTSD is, is you know, you have a um, First of all, it's, it's usually treatment resistant. It's very, very hard to um, have a positive lasting result with traditional uh, therapy and with and, and pharmaceutically with the drugs. It's basically antidepressants, um, certain things that you take a pill every day, probably for the rest of your life. The phase three clinical trials that came out of uh, MAPS uh, treatment with MDMA the results of this are astonishing, and they are that after three treatments uh, with therapy and MDMA, 67% on the first phase three trial, 67% of the participants no longer qualified for a diagnosis of PTSD. They repeated this in a second phase three trial, um, again with a large cohort of people. That went up to, I believe, 72%. So this is a, these are repeatable results showing that MDMA is very efficacious in helping people deal with this. And, uh, and I think just the combination of the way the science is going and um, and just the very, very human and visible impact that wars have had on, on our veterans is really what's driving bipartisan support. That's amazing. I love that. So there's this FDA regulatory pathway right now in terms of getting psychedelics approved for therape therapeutic use. And I know there's also this push of getting them either legalized or they're decriminalized in some places. Can you help explain a little bit about what's going on there and the differences? I know there are a lot of misperceptions about what therapeutic use of psychedelics even looks like, you know, like people just going out, getting some LSD or shrooms and going out into the woods and using it for healing purposes. Maybe you can just explain a little bit about what's really happening there. Sure. So, you know, as I said before, everything is, except for ketamine, is still Schedule 1 federally illegal for any purpose other than research. When you hear about decriminalization and legalization in this context, the difference between decriminalization and legalization is with decriminalization, what you have is either um, you know, a local government or an enforcement agency saying, we are not going to expend our resources. Um, for example, the city of Oakland saying, hey, we're not going to use taxpayer money or bother our uh, police force with enforcing rules on certain substances. 
So decriminalization would mean that less or no enforcement. Um, that still remains um, on the state and local level because federally, the DA has never um, ceded the authority to enforce federal laws on, uh, on Schedule One controlled substances. And a lot of people have heard that there are state frameworks in Oregon and Colorado, where the state legislatures have passed various uh, different, um, different but highly regulated frameworks for the legalization of certain substances. And this is generally natural substances like psilocybin in their natural form. And uh, Oregon has a framework for therapeutic use. Uh, Oregon's a little bit farther along because they passed all these laws uh, a little bit before um, Colorado did. So in those states, the use of certain psychedelics under certain circumstances will be legalized, but they remain federally illegal. Oh, makes sense. So do you think what many states have done with legalizing cannabis is going to serve as an analog for what we're going to see with psychedelics as well? Or do you see different types of barriers to psychedelics that maybe we didn't see with cannabis? That is a really excellent question. It's also something that I think people really often get confused with because they'll look at cannabis and say, look, uh, cannabis is legal in this many states and there's not really enforcement on it, even though a cannabis remains a Schedule One controlled substance. And it always has, you know, really the DA has never taken it out of Schedule One. So, um, you know, by the letter of the definition, cannabis has no accepted medical use and it is uh, completely federally illegal. And how does that uh, makes sense when you look at all the states that have legalized it for um, for not just medicinal purposes, but recreational purposes also. A really big distinction between the legalization of cannabis and the state legalization of certain psychedelics is that the federal government has weighed in on cannabis. And um, there was something called the Cole Memorandum that was issued during uh, the Obama administration where the DOA, I'm sorry, the the DOJ um, issued a formal memorandum that said the federal government is not going to expend federal resources to enforce cannabis cannabis laws in um, states where the legislation where there is legislation to legalize that substance. That is very important because it really offered a um, an umbrella of sort of of non enforcement to operators in this space, and um, and it really drove business in this space um, because people could be reassured, basically, that the DOJ j just said they're not going to enforce, and the state says that they're not going to enforce. Um, this does not exist with psychedelics. The Cole Memor Memorandum does not exist for psychedelics at all, and the DOJ has never taken the position that it's not going to expend federal resources to enforce the use of psychedelics. Um, it, you know, I should also add that the Cole Memorandum was rescinded under the last administration, and it has not actually been reinstated, but the situation there is it did exist. Um, Merrick Garland has uh, made comments that he is also not going to um, enforce it, although it hasn't been reinstated. But the cannabis industry has really moved along uh, so much and so many states have legalized uh, cannabis, you know, even though that memorandum was rescinded, was rescinded. The momentum there, I think, is still uh, that companies are confident in taking the risk and still operating in this space. Uh, psychedelics is far behind that. Um, it, people just really need to be very careful when they are uh, considering uh, going into a business uh, or, or investing money uh, in this area. Mm, definitely. So what do you think the message is for those folks? Do you feel like there are more barriers or more opportunity for psychedelics? There seems to be a lot of interest given what the research has shown in terms of therapeutic benefits. But it also seems like from a public perception standpoint, there might be more of a barrier based on people's perceptions of what psychedelics do 
and their legacy from the 60s and 70s. So just curious what you think the road ahead looks like. Um, So I think there are more barriers and more opportunity because with uh, a lot more barriers come, you know, the people who do get past those hurdles, there's huge opportunity because there will be so few that are able to push this through the FDA process when we're talking about drug development. I think moving forward, I hope that the DOJ and DEA take a clear stance on the legalization of psychedelics or the enforcement of state laws and um, or the enforcement of federal law in states that have legalized psychedelics. You know, cases like Ames versus DEA are on the forefront of pushing the government to sort of take a, a, a position and outline really the parameters of what they're talking about. Because we, um, the DEA is, as as I said before, um, is taking the position in this case that psilocybin is no accepted medical use. On the other hand, the DEA has increased the quota of psilocybin that is allowed legally in this country under a DEA Schedule One license for research by like orders of magnitude these past years. Um, so it, there is definitely confusion in that. Uh, I think there is so much opportunity in this, though. And as a society, I think we will can and will benefit uh, from all of the really, all the promising results that are coming out of research and also from just recognizing things like uh, indigenous communities' use of these substances. So I guess one last question for you, Karen. You're obviously on the front lines pushing and advocating for psychedelics to be made available to folks who need them and to help fulfill the promise of what they can do. So do you have any advice for any interested individuals who are listening regarding what they can do to help advocate for psychedelics? Is that getting involved with some type of advocacy organization? Is it writing to their officials? What would you suggest they could do? Definitely contact your congressperson. Um, it, it, they do listen if enough people contact them. And um, it, you know, because pushing this forward on a state legislative um, on that side has, has value. There's that, uh, dealing with your local government uh, on a grassroots level. There's also just pay attention to the news, um, the news that's happening, the research that's happening, because there is a sea change going on with how many people in the country are starting to recognize, hey, psychedelics isn't just people taking LSD and running off into the woods. It actually has a medical benefit. A lot of people haven't heard that. They haven't heard about how promising this research is to really treat mental health disorders. Um, there are a lot, so many misperceptions. And so paying attention to the science and um, and what's happening in the industry. Uh, and then, you know, if the DEA does actually hold public hearings on the approval of the use of, of psilocybin in Ames versus DEA for treating palliative care patients, these will be uh, public hearings that accept public comment. These hearings are, are sort of broadcast to the public. When Ames versus DA had the oral argument two weeks ago, that was a, it's a public link. You can actually still go to the U.S. District Court's website and look at the oral arguments and, and, and watch them. That sort of participation means a lot, very meaningful, and um, also involvement in organizations like MAPS. They're a nonprofit. They, they conduct events. They have trainings and, and things like that. So those are all opportunities that people who are interested can get involved in this space. That's super helpful advice, Karen. Is there anything else that you want to leave us with? Maybe the most important thing I would say for people that, that want to actually get involved in this space as a business is um, really to make sure you talk to counsel about this. Even if you're in a state that is that is legalized um, psychedelics in certain circumstances, it's important to um, understand the boundaries and the risks that are involved. That would be, I think, the most important thing <laughs> to say. 
sage advice. Thanks so much for participating in our first episode of our Clyde Collision podcast. This was super informative and I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The Clyde Collision podcast is brought to you by Clyde, an impact agency named America's best boutique agency by Provoke. We help clients who want to make a difference in the world by developing informed strategies that harness culture, emerging technology, and insights for maximum impact through communications. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the Clyde Collision podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram and threads at Clyde underscore US, on Twitter at Clyde Group, and on LinkedIn. And if you want to learn more about Clyde, visit us at Clyde.us slash health. Ta-ta for now. <laughs>